Well, good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. I have the privilege of being uh, the lead pastor here. If you're watching us online, uh, let me say welcome to you as well. I'm going to, right from the get-go, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, 26. And uh, I hope that you'll turn there, whether that's on a device or whether you actually have a hard copy of God's Word in your lap. Man, I want you to be there. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different. I'm telling you to turn there now. I'm going to let you know this in advance, okay? I'm telling you to turn there now, but it's going to be a little bit before we get to Acts 26. So uh, we say this, if you're brand new and you come to Salem Chapel, we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and uh, most oftentimes we do that. Uh, this series is going to be a little bit different, though we will definitely be unpacking Scripture because that's why we're here. We're not here to hear from me, we're here to hear from God. We have a phrase here at Salem Chapel, when God's Word is open, God's mouth is open. And so that will always be true, Um, but I'm just letting you know right now, if you're like, man, we haven't gotten to Acts 26 yet, it's because I really want to set up this series and what we mean by uh, this phrase, eyes wide open. The tagline of this series is seeing your story through the lens of God's story. And so I don't want to assume that, that you know what I mean by that, because chances are, if you're new to Salem Chapel, you probably don't. But let me just say something about myself first that I think will correlate to what we're going after in in this story. I, I, I hold on a second. I, I put these on and I look out in the crowd and I see quite a few people that have uh, these uh, apparatuses just like me, which we know are called eyeglasses. But what I want you to know is about two and a half years ago, uh, I did not wear these. In fact, uh, I avoided at all costs wearing glasses. Some of you don't realize this, but about two and a half years ago, I remember I was up here on a Sunday morning, and I was reading scripture, and I was like, I can't make out half of what I'm reading right now. Now, you may not have realized that. Um, we read out of, not, not because it's, it's sinful if you have a different version, but we just read out, of, read out of the English Standard Version, and I say that because some people are like, well, I want to follow along with exactly what you're reading. What you don't realize is about two and a half years ago, there was a Sunday where you're getting more of the Johnny Standard Version than you were the English Standard. <laughs> now, you had no idea, but I was like, holy cow, I cannot put this off any longer. Why? Because I was in complete denial that I was to wear glasses. I equated these with getting older. Now here's what you need to know, I'm farsighted, so I don't need to wear these all the time, but for sure when I am reading scripture or looking at my notes in a message, I for sure need them. Now here's another thing you need to know. I say two and a half years ago, chances are it's about three and a half years ago that I needed to wear these, but I chose to not wear them. Now here's what I found. You you gotta do the whole eye doctor thing, You know, they put that stuff in your eyes that burns. You know, you walk out, your pupils are dilated. You got to wear those things. You know, they're the ugliest things ever. You know, those big, big, massive, like, you know, glasses. And, but here's what I found. All of a sudden now, I played this off. I never even mentioned it. But when I put on, I was like, holy cow, there is the English Standard Version. There are my notes. I don't have to struggle anymore. Now, why do I share that? Because I was in denial for so long that I needed them that what I was doing through my denial was I was missing the reality of what was there. And and I was missing the reality of what was there, so what was I doing? I was making up my own reality. And as I shared, probably not the best idea, especially when we're talking about teaching, 
to be giving Johnny's standard version rather than actually what, what God's word says. So I'm using that as an analogy to illustrate this. That we all have a story. Every one of us. You may have never thought of it that way, but we all do. And so the title of this message is this. Your story, God's story. And we're going to introduce really, and this, this first message is to really set up where we're going to be for the next five weeks. But we all have a story for to think of it that way. Maybe you never thought about your life that way. You've just thought about, you just live your life and you kind of do what you're supposed to do and hopefully the good days outweigh the bad days and you just kind of live life. But if you think about your life as a story, then here's what you need to know. Every day is another page in that story. And hopefully we all desire that the pages will be more good than more difficult. But if Every day is a page of our story, then here's what that means. We also have chapters to our story. And we have chapters in our story, and you have chapters in your story, if you're to view your life that way, that are very joyous things, right? Maybe you come into faith in Christ. It's a very joyous chapter of your story. Or God coming through for you in some way, a provision of a job, or provision of a relationship, or, or provision of a child, or provision of something in your life. And you're like, man, those are joyous things in my life. Those are joyous chapters of your story. And unfortunately, I would wish this not to be the case, but as much as we have joyous chapters of our story, you know what that also means? because we live in a sinful world, is we have very difficult chapters of our story. Chapters that we don't want to relive for sure. Chapters that we definitely don't want to rehash. But here's what I've found in my life. Is that more often than not, it's the difficult chapters of my story that affect how I view how I see reality, how I see myself, how I see relationships, how I see my spouse, how I react and see my children, and even so, how I see, how I view God. See, if you think about it this way on a chart, your life, you perceive life through a lens of reality. And that reality is often shaped by past events in your life, right? Joyous things, but maybe painful things. And that past, even though you may not acknowledge it or realize it or be self-aware enough, it actually shapes how you see the present as well. And it also shapes how you see the future and whether you're optimistic about the future or whether you're pessimistic about the future, whatever it may be. But we all have a reality and that reality is shaped by the chapters and events of our story. Now, if you're like me, I don't like to talk necessarily or relive events in my story. You know what my philosophy has been for the longest time? Why in the world do I need to rehash that? Because I didn't like it the first time. Like, what good is going to come out of thinking about my life as a story? So if you're thinking that, let me just jump right into your circle because that's how I have thought. But we're not so much wanting to concentrate in this series so much on your story 
and me to think about my story as much to also understand that if you have a story and I have a story, here's what I want you also to understand, is that God has a story. God has a story. And his story is revealed in the Bible. But here's what you need to understand about God's story. Before you ever understand God's story, here's what you need to understand. You need to understand who the character of God is. You know, one of the things that I love to do is I love to watch shows that tell you how they make stuff. Anybody else like that? Like, like you like that type of thing? Um, Perfect example, I can't remember the name of the title necessarily, but I was watching Netflix one time and I got sucked into this series, I think it's called Forged in Fire or something, and it's just this like competition where they get all of these blacksmiths and they make swords. Now here's what you need to know about me. I got a pocket knife at best. I don't collect swords, don't really know a lot about swords, and really don't have any desire to buy swords. But, when I, but this show sucked, man, because it was amazing to see how they took these different metals, blocks, and then they created these weapons out of this metal. It was just fascinating to me because what it does is it gives you background to the person that's created this thing. Whether it's swords, whether it's shoes, whether it's guns, whether it's makeover shows of houses, whatever it is. I think the reason why we are captivated and pulled, many of us, to those things is we love to know the backstory of things. Well, if we're going to understand God's story, then we first need to understand God. And here's what the Bible tells us. Before the world was ever created, God existed. And God is made up of three persons. It's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're told in God's word that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect unity, love for one another. Their glory was seen even though the world was not created. Jesus even says in John 17 of God that God loved him before the creation of the world. So scripture tells us that love existed before the world existed. And 1 John tells us that God is love. Now, here's what we need to ask ourselves. Well, if love already, God's love already existed and God's glory already existed, then why in the world did he create the world in the first place? Because I don't know about you, but you didn't need to be reminded today that this world's a little jacked up, right? I didn't need to be reminded of that. Sometimes I don't want to be reminded of that. So why in the world did God create it? He created this world and he created you and he created me. Not because he needed somebody to love him, not because he needed more glory, but because he wanted to share his love with you. And he wanted to share it with me. See, God's story is a story of love. I'm gonna give you a theological term so that you can walk out of here and felt like you got your money's worth, okay? So there's a term here called meta-narrative. Say that with me. Meta-narrative. Say it one more time. I'm not sure you were with me. Ready? One, two, three. Meta-narrative. So when we think about God's word, oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in there's 66 books and, and it's like books within a book and we can sometimes look at the Bible in its entirety and get a little confused and be like, I don't know how this relates to that. I mean, you can read through Genesis and once you get past Genesis 12, you're like, holy cow, what is happening? Like there's a whole lot of crazy, sinful, messed up stuff going on. And you can be like, I'm not sure what this Bible thing's all about. 
But there's a theological term, mera narrative of scripture, and what its meaning is in its basic form is that the Bible is a story about God. And God's story can be defined in four different chapters if we were to think of that on a macro level of the Bible. And here's the four chapters. First of all, in Genesis 1 and 2, you start off with creation. And what the story of creation tells us, if God's story is a story of love, is that God created mankind to love. God created us for love. God created you and he created me to love him and to enjoy him forever and to receive his love that he has for us. That's what God destined in creation. Now here's the problem if we've grown up in church for a long time. When I say creation and we talk to these things, you know what you think of? You think of that little, if you grew up in Sunday school like me, you think of that flannel graph on the board that your, that your wonderful, lovely Sunday school teacher taught you or you think of a book that your parents read to you. Like I have a book that my parents read to me when I was really little and I, I, I see creation in pictures. I see that picture of that cute little garden with Adam and Eve hiding behind bushes lest we be too uh, obscene and, and that's, that's what I remember of creation. But it's so much more than that. Because what we're going to see in this series is the Bible tells us that God created you and me for love. But then, of course, we have the fall. That's another chapter of God's story of love. And in the fall, what we find out in Genesis 3 is that evil enters the world. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God, and evil enters the world. And what the fall tells us, this part of God's story, is that evil keeps us from love. That the things that I experience in my life, God never created me to, to, want, to, to be able to experience. He didn't create me for evil. He created me to experience his love. But unfortunately, we live in a sinful world, and evil keeps us from experiencing love. But then when we go to the Gospels, here's what we find is we find this chapter of God's story called redemption. And what this chapter of God's story that's declared in the Gospels and spoken of uh, by the disciples in the epistles is that God's love, this redemption, that he sent Jesus Christ in the world to redeem us for love so that we could experience his love again, so that his love could speak to you and my reality. And then when you go to the Revelation, what do you find? We find this chapter of consummation that God is going to make all things new. And the sin that we experience, that we were never designed to experience, that he's going to come back one day and he's going to right all wrongs and he's going to restore everything back to the way that it was in creation. Why am I sharing with you? That's God's story of love. And I don't know, some of you maybe have never heard of that before or never thought of it in that way or ever thought of the Bible in those terms, but really the Bible is made up of those four themes. Why do I say that? Because I want you to understand this idea this morning, that God wants you to abide in his love through your story, not in spite of it. I mean, it's not lost on me. I've been doing ministry and pastor, this pastor thing for over 20 years. And what that has taught me, outside of me even experiencing in my own life, is we've all got stuff if we're to use that analogy, we all have stuff in our story, those chapters that we really don't want to relive, we really don't want to rethink, we definitely don't want to share them with other people.
And like I said before, they often shape how we view ourselves, how we interact with our relationships, and how we view God. But if we understand that God's story is a story of love, and he says in John 15, abide in me and I in you, for without me you can do nothing, then I also have to ask myself, man, is the life that I'm living right now, and let me just be honest with myself, is maybe more just about surviving than thriving? Like if you're in your relationships, you're like, man, why in the world that every time someone does something against me, do I receive it as a threat and I cut off that friendship or I cut off that relationship and I just have a literally trail of broken relationships in my life? Maybe there's something in your story that's causing you to view relationships that way. But if we understand that God desires us to abide, to learn, to grow, and how his story of love actually makes a difference in your story and my story. And that God doesn't want me to run from my story, but no, 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 he wants me to experience his love through my story, not in spite of it. Then I believe that's the key that the Lord desires us to use his story to unlock us, to move from a place of surviving to a place of thriving in all of our relationships. Because so often, here's what we do. We truncate the gospel to only how it affects our eternity. And don't get me wrong with that. Praise God that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserved. He rose again three days later. So that if I died today, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to be with him forever. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Absolutely. But let me not truncate the gospel to just what it does for me in eternity. Let me not take away the power of how God's gospel and his story of love impacts me in the present. How Jesus makes a difference not only for my eternity, but for my everyday life that I live in this sinful world. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to show you that when we allow God's story of love to be the lens by which we see our story, three things happen. Now we can be in Acts 26. I told you, it was gonna be a minute. Acts 26, we're gonna look at all throughout this chapter, but if you followed along in our reading plan, which you can grab um, at the Welcome Center on your way out, you can go to our website, salemchapel.org, backslash eyes wide open. Even if you're watching me right now, you can do that. You can download this. I encourage you to do so. But this week, I had you read Acts 21 all the way through Acts 26. Here's why. Because Acts 21 starts how Paul ends up in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26. So it's important to get the context. And so I don't want to walk through every chapter, but here's what I do want us to understand, because some of you maybe have not read this, is how in the world does Paul get in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26? Well, here's what you need to understand. In Acts 21, unfortunately... Paul gets misunderstood and gets falsely accused that he is bringing Jews into, or Gentiles, I'm sorry, into the temple, which if you don't know anything, here's what you need to know. To the Jews, that's a big no-no. So this mob, you know, starts up and starts accusing Paul, and so Paul gets overwhelmed by this mob, and Paul speaks to the mob, and you know what he tells the mob in Acts 21? His story. 
And that doesn't calm down the mob at all. In fact, the mob then takes him to the uh, council, Jewish council and to the chief priests. And they don't particularly like that Paul is proclaiming who Jesus is and, that, uh, and what he has going on. And so you know what Paul says to the chief priests and to the council? He tells him his story. Well, then the chief priests and the council, like, like they want to literally take him to task. They want to whip him. They want to scourge him. They take him to Felix who's the Roman governor, and all of a sudden Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship and says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't whip me. So Felix kind of enjoys Paul and enjoys his company, enjoys his conversation. But what do you think that Paul tells Felix? He tells Felix his story. And then Felix goes on to greener pastures, and all of a sudden now you have Festus, and Festus is overseeing Paul's imprisonment. What do you think? Paul tells Festus. Are you tracking me? What does he tell him? His story, yeah. And then Festus all of a sudden has King Agrippa, who we're going to see in Acts 26. He meets Festus in Caesarea. And Festus tells King Agrippa, hey, I have this guy Paul. Well, King Agrippa, if you didn't understand, is the pseudo-king of the Jews right now. And King Herod, the, the Herod in the story of Christmas that tried to put... Jesus to death, let me kill every male child under two years of old, that King Herod, well, that's King Agrippa's granddad. And so that's where we find ourselves. Now Paul is going to tell his story yet again, and let's start in verse 4. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among mine own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Like what Paul's saying is, is, is my rep is known by pretty much everybody. Verse five, they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul's like, hey, nobody, like I, like I had the pedigree. Like great education, I was a Jew, I was a religious elite. Verse six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So really what Paul was speaking about is the resurrection, but they were forming lies to say, the la to say something else. Verse nine, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus and Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What is Paul doing? He's actually telling his story, and he's not just telling the good parts of it, he's actually telling the parts that nobody would want to claim. He's like, King Agrippa, I used to kill Christians. That's what I did, and I did it well, and I did it passionately, and I did it rigorously. Like, that's my past. But look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So now he's going to tell how he came to Jesus. He's like, man, I'm on the road to Damascus, and I'm like, I'm like a bull in a china shop. I'm about to do the same thing that I have been doing. 
Verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, which if you don't know, was Paul's name before his conversion. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Can we just stop right there? Is it not shocking to you intuitively that if Paul is literally killing and persecuting and sending people to foreign nations who believe in who Jesus is, that Jesus doesn't just take a little time as he talks to Paul on the road to Damascus and say, Paul, you ain't doing that anymore. You are wrong. You are sinful. Your behavior is sinful. It's wicked. I condemn you. Anybody else find that intuitively like strange that Jesus doesn't do that? Makes me think of what Jesus says in John 3, 17. I haven't come into the world to condemn the world. But I've come to the world to tell about life. What do we say God's story is? It's a story of love. What does Jesus do to bring Paul to his knees? Does he give him a story of condemnation? No. He gives him a story of love. It says in verse 17, Verse 17, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the purpose that he gives Paul. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you allow God's story of love to be the lens by which you see God's story, here's the first thing that happens that I see that also happens to Paul. God's love reframes how you view him and how you view your story. Sometimes here's what I'm afraid of. Especially for those who have been in church for a long time and heard all these stories of the Bible, is we can view these characters, if I can say that, characters in the Bible, as these individuals that are void of emotion, and are void of the things that we feel, and void of the struggles that we struggle with, and somehow they're just these you know, beings that exist in God's word, but we, fit, we, we take the humanness out of them. Here's why I say that. I'm pretty sure I'm safe to guess, and I don't make light of this at all, but I'm pretty sure it's a safe bet that there's nobody in this room right now who has murdered people. But let's just think about this. If you sat here today and you're listening to me teach and you have a Bible open on your lap or on your phone or whatever it is, and you had a past like Paul, 
And before you came to Christ, your literally mission in life was to stamp out Christianity and to oversee the killing of Christians and the persecuting of Christians and the literally sending Christians and sending them outside of their homes and separated from their families. And you sat here right now with a Bible open on your lap. You know what you would struggle with? Man, I don't know about you, but you'd have to be not human to not face tremendous guilt, tremendous sorrow, tremendous shame. Like, Lord, I'm so thankful that I believe in this gospel, but God, I can't get past that this was the same gospel that other people believed. I can see their faces and what I've done to them. I can see how I've persecuted them. I can see what all the, all the horrible things that I've done. You don't think that Paul would have faced those same things? I think he would have. So what allowed Paul to not be crippled in a figurative corner useless from what, how God wanted to use him. You know how what I believe it was? He understood God's love and how it applied to those sinful, wicked, not to mention, never wanting to utter chapters of his story, but he understood that God's love could reframe how he viewed God and reframe how he viewed his story. That's why Jesus says to him, Paul, I want to give you a new purpose. And this purpose is for you to share this gospel with other people. You turn to the book of Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. And what does Paul say there? He says, here's what I want for you, church at Ephesus. I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. That's what I want you to be rooted and grounded in, in love. Why? So that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height of death and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is Paul in essence saying? It's great that you know every theological truth of God's word. It's great that you may sit here today and you know Hebrew and you know Greek and you know all of these different things about, about the Lord and theology and all of that which is great. But if what grips you, your heart more than anything else is not God's love for you, then you're not grounded in the right thing. And I think it's so interesting that the reason why Paul says this to the church at Ephesus, that passage that we just read, is the reason why he's saying that to others is because that's first gripped his heart. He's like, man, if you can't be grounded in anything more than God's love for you, because I understand that. I remember my past. I remember the things that I did. But praise God, God's love has reframed how I view him and how I view even the painful parts of my story. And when you do that, here's what happens. You all of a sudden begin to reconnect with God and find rest in him that you haven't experienced before. Man, God, I saw you as this distant being. And the more and more that I abide in your love, I see how it makes a difference in every aspect of my life. Here's what else it does. It, 
It causes me to remember because I'm so easy to forget. It causes me to remember where my help and where my hope comes from. Man, good, so often I, my help is seen in people or circumstances, but God, your help has always been here. And I've forgotten that your love intersected my reality and speaks to my past, to my present, and to my future. That's why Paul has the perspective that he says in Philippians 4 that almost seems like this superhuman, unnatural, never attainable perspective where Paul says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Like I know what it's like to be, to feel literally as low as possible and I know what it's like to live on cloud nine. In any and every circumstance, the joyous ones and the difficult ones, the joyous chapters and the painful chapters of my story, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and a hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? Man, I understand I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. What's the significance of that? Well, what is it about Christ that gives me strength? The thing that gives me strength about Christ is that he lived and he died and he rose again for me. And I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. And how could that all be summed up? The thing that gives me strength about Christ is his love for me. It reframes how I view him. It reframes how I see my story. But let's continue reading as Paul's in front of Agrippa here. There, he's, there he says in verse 19, Therefore, O king of Agrippa, still telling his story, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So he's like, which I don't know who would be if Jesus shined and spoke to you out of a bright light as you're driving home this morning. I think we all would pay attention. Am I wrong? Probably not. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and return to God. Man, I embrace this purpose that Jesus gave me through his love. Verse 21, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Can you just picture Paul here standing in front of King Agrippa and he know his life is in the balance? And he, can you just see the confidence that's oozing off of the page? That confidence is supernatural. Because when you allow God's story of love to be the lens by which you're, you're, you see your story, here's the second thing that happens. God's love restores what sin has broken in you. Paul's past should have broken Paul. And we would sit here today and not cast any judgment on that because we were like, man, I understand, man. He murdered people. He persecuted people. He banished people. And that's a hard thing to ever recover from regardless of whether or not you ever come to a place where you see that it was wrong. Sin should have broken Paul. Should have ruined him. But it didn't. Why? 
Because God's story intersected his reality. And that's what God's love does. Some of us are sitting here this morning and we have such shame and we have such guilt and we have such sorrow over our past. And sin has broken us. But what God wants you to see through his word today and as we walk through this series, because we're just walking through God's story in the Bible, is that the thing that makes God's love so amazing is that yes, it saves you for all of your eternity, but it also soothes and heals and restores your present today. It restores the past. It restores the present. And it will restore the future. And what that begins to do, it begins to regain your confidence in God and your relationship with him. Because here's what I've found. What does the devil say in John 10.10? I've come to steal, to kill, and destroy. And you know what sin does in our lives? It wants to rob us from the confidence that God wants us to have in him. And where is our confidence rooted and grounded? According to Paul in Ephesians 3, we just read it. In his love. Listen to Paul's confidence. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this. The saying is trustworthy. So literally what he's saying is, hey, take this to the bank, cash the check, this is true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this is interesting what Paul says. Of whom I am the foremost. Like this is, this is one of those J Johnny Standard Version uh, translations. You ready for this? Like Paul's literally saying this. Like you, you look up sinner in the proverbial dictionary and my face is there. Literally saying to the crowd, he's like, hey, how many of you have murdered people, persecuted people, banished people? No hands? I have. But here's what I've come to understand. Not that that wasn't wrong. Not that that wasn't wicked. No, no, no. But God's story of love trumps the sin in my story. And he's restored what is broken. Here's what else Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, let's stop for a second because that's probably a very familiar passage to many of us. But when you understand Paul's story and his past, you don't think that that wasn't a magnificent revelation that he was growing in and living in in his own life? That when the shame and the guilt and the sorrow wants to overwhelm, wait a minute, I'm a new creation through Jesus Christ's story of love and act of love. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul's not preaching something that he isn't living that hasn't made an effect in his life. Let's continue reading, we'll be done. Let's go back to Paul there in front of King Agrippa and he says, and he, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, because don't forget Festus is there as well, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Can you imagine, like, Paul's like, this is the fourth time since Acts 21 that I've had to share my story, man. I've got it down. It's nice and tight. Like, 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 like I, think I'm gonna, I think I stand a chance here. And I'm just picturing as someone who does public speaking, speaking quite a bit, like if one of you, and don't do this please, if one of you were about to yell out, Johnny, you are out of your mind. That may take me off my game a little bit. 
but it doesn't with Paul. Paul says what? Verse 25, he says, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, understatement of, this, of, the, of the chapter, right? I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words for the king, he's speaking of Agrippa because he's a Jew, don't forget. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. It's not been done in secret, in other words, is what he's saying. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Like, once again, Paul's getting some, some flack here. Like, now he's getting the crowd to speak back out to him, right? Once again, it doesn't throw him off. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What a statement. Like if Paul was still enslaved by his past, he never would have said this. I never would tell other people, I want you to be as I am. But Paul wasn't speaking of his past. He's speaking as someone who understood Christ's love in an exceptional way and knew how it reframed and restored and has redeemed him. He says, verse 31, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, they see his innocence. Here's, here's what I want you to understand as we close. When you allow God's story of love to be the lens by which you see your story, here's the third thing that happens, that we see Paul living here. God's love redeems the shame of your story into a story to be shared. Like Paul's come a long way from him persecuting Christians to him now staying in King Agrippa. And by the way, this is all in the book of Acts. So you don't have to go back too far to see Paul doing what he's doing against Christians. But now we see Paul up here with such confidence knowing the circumstances that may await him. Like he may get ordered to be put to death but he's like, here's what I want for you, King Agrippa. Here's what I want for you, Festus. Here's what I want for every person. I want you to be like I am. I want you to see how God's story of love intersects every aspect of your story, the good and the most painful parts. Because when we do that, here's what happens. It begins to reignite in us not only my love for God, but my love for others, my love for you, your love for me, the love for the person beside you. Because you're like, holy cow, I've, I've seen in a fresh and a new way, in a way that the gospel has always been designed to be. This is nothing new. God's love has always been meant to do this. We've just, as I said, truncated it just to speak to eternity. But when I understand that and I live in that and I continue to learn in that and continue to grow in that and continue to be restored by that, here's what happens. All of a sudden now I want to tell other people about it because it's not just about what God will do in eternity, but it's how he makes a difference in your and my life today. One last passage of scripture, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. 
He says, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. I've never thought about it this way. How does God make his appeal through us? In other words, what Paul is saying is the way that God's designed his gospel to be shared, his story of love to be shared, is for you to share your story. For you to come to grips with how Christ's love has impacted you. And when you come to grips with how God's love has impacted you, all of a sudden now you have a story that testifies to the life-changing power of the gospel. So as we close, here's what I want you to just ask yourself. How are you seeing your life? Some of you may want to engage in, in this exercise, and so... I just put together, you can grab this at the Welcome Center. I didn't pass them out because I I knew that, I I didn't want it to seem like I was pushing this on you at all. But the Welcome Center, I put together a document that just helps you to walk through your story and to think about it. And I know that may be difficult for you. Some of you could think about doing absolutely everything else under the sun than that. But if you choose to do that, I promise you, you're going to understand as we walk through this for the next five weeks how the story of the Bible actually makes a difference in what you've experienced. Because here's what I've found in my own life is that I often can repeat what I don't allow God to repair. Right, like shove it in a box, close it, never open it up. But unfortunately, when we do that, here's the thing, the hurt of that and the ramifications of that, we fail to realize actually influence and affect how we live life. And so as scary as it is, here's what happens. It's an opportunity for us to experience God's love in a way maybe that we never have, but in a way that he's always intended. So I hope that you will engage in this series as we walk through this for the next five weeks. And it's not at the end of six weeks. You're like, I got it. I got the diploma. I passed the class. I'm all good now. But it will help you understand how God's love speaks and can preach and can minister as we live this life as Christ followers. Would you stand with me as I pray? God, I thank you today for just maybe looking at the Bible in a way, yes, that was always intended, but in a way maybe that we never have. And looking at the gospel in the way that you've always intended, but maybe in a way that we never have. Maybe we're guilty of truncating it as awesome, as glorious as it is to something that's in the distant future in another life, but not seeing at all the relevance of today. And so Lord, May we put on the glasses, so to speak. May we allow your love to be the lens by which we see our reality today, our past, and our future. In Jesus' name, amen.